Bill is a failed skydiver and a bear sometimes he runs. Ben's always traveling, an occasional beach bum. Phil talks a lot, Ben not at all. It's BHP Town Hall. Random guests, alcohol, BHP Town Hall. Ben created Eye on Off, he's a comic book fanatic. Phil made Pyro CMS, he's probably in a kayak. Phil talks a lot, Ben not at all. It's BHP. Town Hall. Random guests, alcohol, BHP, Town Hall. Hello, welcome to episode 55 of the PHP Town Hall podcast. Uh, today you have myself, Ben Edmonds, and Amanda Folsom. Uh, we are joined today by Michael Wells and Michael Lopp. Hey guys. Hello. All right, so let's let's kick it off. Uh, I guess with Lop, could you give us a quick intro? Like how quick? Like, like quick? three minutes. Three minutes. Oh, that's not quick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name is Michael Lop. Going backwards, um, I am currently the VP of Engineering at Slack. Uh, before that, I was the head of engineering at Pinterest. Before that, I was this company called Palantir which is always an interesting place to talk about. And before that, I worked at Apple. I ran the Apple store. And before that, I ran Pocket Marcos 10 Team. I was at Netscape. I was at Borland. I've written some books. I go by this name, Rands, on the internet. Um, I sound like a fortune cookie on Twitter. And um, it's a pleasure to be here. Perfect. All right. Uh, Michael Wells, intro. Yeah. So, hey, my name is Michael Wells. Uh, I've been an engineer my entire career um, at a Companies ranging in all sizes from, you know, one person when I was a freelancer in high school um, to extremely huge organizations like the NSA. So I'm familiar with Palantir uh, <laughs> and the Air Force. Uh, I am currently the vice president of engineering at a brand new startup in Chicago called Moonrise, where we're trying to build an on-demand temporary staffing platform. Prior to that, I led a team of 50 engineers and instructors as the director of content development at Udacity. All right. Uh, Amanda, do you want to kick us off with any certain topic here? What do you think? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess we can kind of start at the beginning. So I think a lot of people who are either getting into management or even people who have been in management for a while uh, eventually find themselves in the position where they're building out a new team. Uh, and I don't know to anybody listening out there, like building out a new team is kind of, at least I've always found it a little intimidating because sometimes you know what you want. Sometimes you don't necessarily know what you want. There's a lot of just general feedback on interview loops and process and procedure. Uh, so let's dig into that. Cool. So kind of, yeah. Um, <laughs> so building out a new team, I mean, my, my approach tends to be, you know, sit down, figure out what you need, first of all, and then uh, I inevitably end up working with recruiters and things to, to build out uh, not just the job requirements and things that are going to go on the job board, but also the interview loops, who we're going to pull into those sorts of things. So I'd love to hear a bit about your experiences doing that sort of work and kind of where you begin with all that. Um, I'll go first. Um, there's about nine questions inside of that. So, right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so um, the way the way I start with that particular piece is uh, I first look at what I'm bad at because there's like a long list of things that I'm bad at. And, and understanding that gives me sort of a first sort of rubric in terms of what am I looking for in terms of 
if assuming we're talking with a brand new team and you're not inheriting, which is a whole other kind of problem set of like, oh, what do I have right now? I'm handed by Vendel. So that's kind of number one is I'm happiest when I have a set of, of people that are around me that are augmenting, augmenting my weaknesses. For example, I am all about like the hand wavy kind of design it up front. Like we're going to go build this cool thing and it's going to be fucking amazing. Let's go do it. And then at about 40% done, I'm like, all right, I'm bored. Because the next 40% is like super not interesting, which is like the hardest part, by the way. So I need those people that are really going to be good at that sort of like get over the cusp kind of design phase into like pure, solid, great execution and like get it across the line. That's like one small example. But like once I have a good sense of that, um, I can start to figure out, okay, I'm going to define the execution types or the design types or whatever that set of people is. So. I don't know, Mike. What do you? What's your? What's your opening statement here? No, I completely agree, and I'm I'm actually going through this right now. So I mean, we're the whole company is seven people. Um, we're a very small team, and um, we have budget aligned and allocated. That you know, I know in January I'm looking for a DevOps person because you know the three people on my team right now are not. We're managing it, but we're not doing a good job of it. Um, and so we can identify the problems, and we just. We actually have a whiteboard in our office that's like people we need and we just start a list and we prioritize those and and go through them and i think at our size i mean we're so small um that and I, i've always been of this opinion when hiring people that if there's any doubt if there's any like eh, it's a no um at our size it has to be a strong yes that's the right person for our company right now right all right uh, I'm the same way at our size where it's 312 engineers right now. But um, for when, when I'm, I don't make a lot of the hiring decisions, but when I do, it's exactly the same rubric. If there's any doubt in my mind, I'm just like, no, like just about every bad people situation I've been in with a person, someone I've hired, it almost always goes back. And this, there's a, there's a hindsight bias here. It goes back to like, well, it wasn't culture fit in the interview or it wasn't this is thing that we saw and we talked ourselves into it. And it very often turned into like the reason we had to, we had to let the person go. So that spidey sense, I think is incredibly important. Yeah. It, it makes me think of, I really, I don't know if you've used levers platform. Um, I really like levers platform because the grades are one, two, three, four. And so there's no middle of the road. They make you choose a side. Um, yeah. So I, I love that whether it's that platform or not, but just you have to decide. You can't just be middle of the road. Yeah. And we have a, we have a, it's Slack, we have a post roundtable after the interview happens where everyone gets together. And we don't always do this, but one of the folks insists when we start, because we use Greenhouse, you put all the feedback in there. You can't see the feedback until you put it in there. But whenever we start the meeting, everyone has to come in and say whether they're up or down and they can't do this thing here. So they understand right out of the gate that like, where is everyone kind of weighing in on this? So you don't see that sort of like, Oh, I, I liked her a lot. Da, 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 and people start to like get convinced and not remember what they're interviewing for, like what their group was that they were, they were measuring against. Yeah. We did very similar. And actually it was, it was mandated at Udacity um, and you couldn't talk to each other before you wrote your feedback in the platform. So you didn't bias one another. Um, and one of the really valuable things we found about that was, um, I would call it um, calibrating the interviewing team. So mm -hmm. we ran through four or five candidates that it was just like a hard line no. Mm -hmm. um, and the recruiter was always in those sessions with us that after, you know, that after action thing. Um, 
you know, we knew, hey, we need to go back and look at that wreck and figure out like there's something wrong. We're not getting the right candidates or the recruiters aren't finding the right people or maybe we're just being unrealistic. Uh, there was an opportunity to, to calibrate there if you weren't just talking about the candidate. Yep, totally. Uh, all right, so talking about building out a new team, one thing, um, like I, I usually like building out a, a whole new team from scratch. I find that a little, I guess, less stressful in a way <laughs> because you usually have an idea of the problem you want to solve and the culture you, you want to start. And culture is always like the biggest thing, uh, in my opinion, right? Because once you get the culture, it's kind of, it takes care of itself um, mm -hmm. to a certain extent. You do have to you know, garden. But um, so how do you guys feel, and you, Amanda, um, how do you feel about, do you prefer new teams? Do you prefer, you know, augmenting a team? How do you feel about that? Um, it, I, I've done both. So it's, um, it's kind of equal amount of work to me. I mean, yes, you have, when, if you're starting from zero, like Mike is doing, I think that's like, you, there's so many other things that you're doing on top of building the team, you're defining culture, every piece of the process you're doing right there. So I guess that's probably a lot more work, but in terms of the team building, um, when I, I inherited a team at Slack, it's, there was still that equal, like sizing of the folks, figuring out what the right kind of working relationship was, defining the relationship, building that trust and respect piece. So that was, that's the same amount of work in terms of hiring the people, bringing folks in to me. So it's, there's no real preference. I guess I have a slight preference to building it as well, just because I can, perhaps there's more decisions that I can make as opposed to ones that are kind of, here's the team you're getting. But there, it, to me, it's, it's still this big, huge challenge to kind of get it kind of into a state that is a happy, healthy, productive team. Yeah, for for me, I find that I personally go through these kind of waves in which I prefer one option over the other. And that's, that's kind of one of the reasons I'm at Moonrise right now um, is because I, I'm in that that opposite side of the wave where, um, you know, I really want to build a team up from the ground and, and develop the culture and all that sort of stuff. Um, but you know, when I, when I joined Udacity, that was kind of like my entry into Silicon Valley from, you know, DOD government hell. And, uh, you know, in, in that opportunity, I, I adopted a team and that was a really enjoyable experience as well. So I don't think, I necessarily prefer one over the other. It's just, you know, they, they all come with their own uniques and unique challenges and pros and cons. And it's really like, where am I in my life? And like, what else is going on in, in my world that, uh, that helps influence these decisions? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So uh, I've kind of had a few different jobs. I've done full-time engineering. Uh, right now I'm doing developer relations and DevRel work and managing a team of people that do that. And um, I, I tend to prefer to start from scratch when I'm just doing the engineering side of things. I think that gives me a lot of flexibility over the, the project and control over certain things. And I, I know what needs to happen and we've sat down and defined requirements and all sorts of things. And I can go find people that are going to be able to work on those things. But when it comes to DevRel, I'm actually the exact opposite. I really like joining a DevRel team that already exists. That's already mostly functional or completely functional. Um, I've, I've kind of done both there. And it's just nice to, to be able to come in and hear how other people are working, hear how they're solving problems, hear about the sorts of problems that they're working on. Um, and for this last job that I just started, uh, it was actually nice to just come in and observe how people were doing and what they were working on and the sort of things that were coming up. And I actually really enjoyed that process, which I haven't been able to experience as much. Um, just being able to, yeah, come in and 
and just watch how things are going and offer suggestions if I felt that I had any or just shut up and stay out of the way uh, sometimes too, uh, which I think is a little underrated. <laughs> yeah, if it was Devrel, I would prefer to just move into a team. That's such a new, like, interesting yeah. career that I think every organization defines it differently. That yes. <laughs> honest with you, I don't know if I could step in and be like, "Yep, I'm going to build a DevRel team." <laughs> because, like, yeah, it's tough. Uh, yeah, there's unique challenges. So I think, like, when it comes to budget things, especially like DevRel teams spend a lot of money, and it's very hard to track where that money is going. So it's like, yeah, we spent ten thousand dollars sending all these people to a conference, but our ROI is very different. Versus engineering, it's like, we know we need people who need to build this thing for us and we need it either by this timeline or it's an ongoing thing or whatever. So yeah, I think budget wise, it's definitely a very different beast. <laughs> and in other ways. Do you, um, so do you find yourself like advocating more for your people and for your budget to management with that than you would as an engineering you know, lead? In some ways, yes. Uh, so not so much at my current job. Uh, I think for DevRel specifically, there needs to be buy-in at the top level for developer relations. Otherwise, people are kind of, they're kind of off-put. They're like, oh, well, you're, you're going to spend a lot of money and we can't tie that money to sales directly. I mean, of course, there are ways to measure how you're influencing sales, but a lot of managers that I speak to are kind of not 100% sold on the whole developer relations thing. And I've spent a significant portion of my time justifying my job, to be honest, <laughs> that I didn't have to do with engineering. Um, not, well, not entirely true. No, not in the same way. Like sometimes yeah. you overhire and, you know, you need to lay people off or something with engineering as well. But I feel like in DevRel, that's one of the first things to go. Whereas I feel like engineering mm -hmm. has a bit more staying power when it comes to budget cuts. Interesting. Anyway, I wasn't trying to make this about Devrel. <laughs> no, it's interesting side topic. Yeah. Uh, all right. So speaking of you know hiring new teams and all that, let's um let's delve into a little bit on interviews. Let's start out with kind of the the more fun negative aspect. <laughs> what is either the uh, the worst interview you've had yourself or the worst one you've been a part of? Wow, worst one. I haven't had that one in a while. <laughs> worst interview I've been a part of. Hmm. Gosh. All right. I'll kick it off. What's one for me was uh, I was being interviewed and at some, it, you know, normal course of the conversation, uh, I brought up some work I had done with microservices and service oriented architecture type things. Right. Uh, and it was just like this almost like trigger you could feel in the room that the interviewer just hated the idea of microservices. So then the rest of the interview became like a fight. And at yeah. one point, I'm basically like, do you want me to give you a different answer? Because, like, this is my answer. But, like, <laughs> I don't want to argue. Like, we don't have to keep doing this. And it was just, like, this really weird vibe. Like, I, I'm okay. I disagree with you. That's a thing people do. I think far more good interviews than bad. I think the worst I had was I was, it was, I won't name the company, but it was, they had a very rigorous engineering process. and person that was doing the interview was basically a robot that was there was it was i'm going to ask you these three technical questions about database stuff and there's one right answer to it and there was literally zero feedback there was like it was literally like talking to a, a, a taupe wall and we finished 
I knew th- I knew what I was talking about. I, I think I answered it well. We had 30 minutes. We were done in 12. And we had 18 minutes. You, was, you stayed through the entire interview. We had 18 minutes of the most awkward time ever. Where I was like, hey, so what's it like to work at blah, blah, blah company? And they're like, it's good. 18 minutes. Like 18 minutes. We've been talking for 20 and this is a delight. It was just this nightmare. And this person was didn't feel empowered to like ask questions or anything it was just it was were they like afraid to be personable or they just weren't interested i i couldn't t- it was literally like there was some script that they had to, and i like, oh. I went, like nine minutes into the 18 minutes i'm like is this part of the interview to like see what i'm like and this uncomfortable because i'm like this i'm like should i leave or whatever what, i have no idea um or just bad people skill i don't know that was just it was memorably memorably bad that sounds horrible um so I'm gonna take the the other side of it, and um, and the worst interview I, I participated in as the interviewer. Um, I had an opportunity at Udacity to actually you know interview my next boss, which is nice. Um, and so it was myself. Uh, you know, I led all of the the instructors and the engineers that were building you know the the content on the platform, um, and uh, my counterpart. Uh, she ran the the video production team and they did, you know, they turned all the garbage we spit into a computer into something pretty beautiful. So we're in this room interviewing someone that, uh, you know, we're looking for someone to kind of head up. Um, it was during a reorg um, and one of those horrible layoffs um, to, you know, be our new boss. And on, on paper, this person sounded great. You know, they're from Hollywood. They've done story building. Um, you know, the very not so heavy on the the engineering and teaching side of things, but really good on like the product and marketing and video production side of things just sounded great. As soon as we started, he just starts name dropping a bunch of Hollywood names, um, acting like he's like this this big deal. And I have no idea who he's talking about. Um my my Partner, they they kind of know some of them, but they they're not too impressed. And then so it's just like bad name dropping. Just like yeah, he just and he, he he talked around the questions a lot, where he never really would answer it. He would just like you'd ask him a question, and he'd be like, "Oh yeah, I worked with blah 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 on this thing, blah blah blah." And I'm like, "I have I literally have no idea what you're talking about." Um, and then at the end of the interview. He asked us, um, so like, we're, you know, okay, thank you for your time. Shake hands and leave. And he's like, oh, you know, and he's like, this is what you do in Silicon Valley, right? And he tried to like fist bump both of us. Um, and Udacity's like very aware of it's the, the bro-y culture that exists. And we just walked out of there like, no way. I think my lever feedback was like, literally, if you hire this person, I quit. Like, no way. Um, so yeah, that was one of the worst interviews I've ever been a part of. Are you uh, are you back, Amanda? Are you, are you functional? functional? Amanda's on uh, hotel Wi-Fi, so <laughs> uh, not anymore. Now I'm I'm trying the tethering thing. We'll see how that goes. Um, yeah. So best interview I've ever been a part of. Um, actually, no, I've had a few. Still, we're still on the worst one. Actually. Still on the worst. Okay. Uh, so worst. There's kind of two answers to that. So me personally, I, I got into it with a a project manager. Um, like traditional PMP, PMBOK style project manager. They were interviewing me for a scrum master position. Uh, she got very combative with me about uh, scrum versus like traditional 
PMP style project management. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, it was pretty bad. Very primary candidate who aggressive with me for, uh, I actually don't even remember the context, but they, they started fighting with me about process and procedure and things in the interview. And I was kind of like, uh, yeah, so that was my do not hire. Like if you hire this person, I'm going to leave. Lots of people really liked this person. Uh, this person I actually thought was going to launch across the table and fight me. So it's like, uh, yeah, I could, I could kind of do without that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so now I won't really go into the best one. Um, what do you personally feel is uh, makes for a good interview? Like, what do you look for? How do you try to structure them? Things like that, because bad interviews are kind of notorious around tech right so what are your thoughts on how to do that properly i mostly am interviewing leadership types now but i think the the model i'm about to describe is probably applicable to any role but i uh, to really interview a leader well um i had to have a really clear sort of uh, rubric for like what i'm looking for in a leader and um that i'll just be super quick it's 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 three things that are bound together by one thing um, i'm looking at the vision piece can they describe this ambitious, scary future that we want to should go to in a compelling way? Do they have vision. Then there's, okay, great. They have the vision piece strategy. How do they go and say, okay, we're going to head in this direction. We need to build these road signs that are going to tell us how to actually get to the vision piece strategy. Okay. What are the big chunk things we do to go and achieve this thing? And then finally there's a tactics piece, which is, okay, can you follow road signs? Um, those three things have a set of questions around them that I kind of get a sense of what kind of leader a, someone is because it takes all different types. Sometimes people are stronger on vision and weaker on tactics, blah, blah, blah. But once I have that kind of clear rubric, I can kind of get a sense of like general sort of leadership uh, shape, if you will. There's one thing that also ties it all together, which is a, a huge amount of signal for me, which is, and it shows up in lots of different ways, all of those things, that whole little pyramid of whatever the hell I'm talking about here, is tied together by judgment. Judgment is how do they make decisions and how do they explain how they make decisions? It's experience, it's it's just intuition, it's all these sorts of things. I'm looking at kind of how, what do I get a sense of how their judgment is? And that can show up at any point. It kind of binds the whole thing together. But that once I had that model in place, it's really easy for me, and I have a set of questions, it's really easy for me to kind of adapt to the person because all, all leaders are all different shapes and sizes and they're total and some of them in different combinations of them can work amazingly well together one standard interview doesn't work it has to be adapted to kind of like how they kind of fall into that into that rubric for me so it only took like 20 years to figure out <laughs> yeah so I, I think i look for a lot of the very same things um i would add one thing and um, at, at this point in time, I, I'm not interviewing. I, I don't imagine the type of leaders that, uh, that WAP is um, more kind of at the tactical uh, level. Uh, but passion is a big one for me. Um, if, if you can't rattle off a few blogs or Twitter handles or like people that you know, um, if you can't tell me like what's the most exciting feature in the browser that's coming in a year, um, then you're probably not going to be a really great candidate for me. I want you to be excited about your job. Um, and it's not just a nine to five. Um, when we get down to the actual like tactical level of the interview itself, beyond, you know, what people I'm looking for, um, I think it's really important 
for a cross-section of the organization that they're going to be interacting with to interview them. So I'm a big panel, I'm a big fan of you know panel interviews where if you're an engineer, you're going to interview with one or two engineers. Um, that will be a you know a technical interview. Um, I would prefer it not to be on a whiteboard, like let's break out a computer, but yes, you're gonna write some code, you're gonna answer some questions. Um, you're also going to interview with a product manager um, because that's the person that's like helping you do your work. You're going to be interviewing with a project manager. Um, and so just a cross section of the organization um, and not just a group of engineers. That way, um, you know, you can really get a, a holistic feel for, because an interview is not a long time. I mean, even if it's five people, 30 minutes to an hour a piece, it's really only five hours. And like, you got to put up with this person for 40 hours a week. Like you want to make sure you get it right. Um, so yeah, just a holistic view from the organization. Um, and really that, as we kind of discussed earlier, that it has to be a yes. There's no, there's no wavering in it. If someone's a maybe, the answer is a no. So like on that passion thing, um, it does get thrown around a lot, especially in like early Silicon Valley culture of like a, a slightly covered veil for a single guy that's willing to work till 9 p.m. Right. So how do you how do you separate that? The definition of being passionate about what you're doing and then maybe somebody even like yourself right, that has a family and obligations where maybe it is more than nine to five. But that doesn't mean they're not passionate when they're there. Absolutely. Um, and that that is a risk. Um, and that kind of ties into like biases and stuff that everyone has. And like you, you kind of recognize your own unconscious biases. For me, that's not um, like, oh, you know, React came out yesterday and I learned it over the weekend. Um, if someone says, and I'm the perfect example of this, I've been beating myself up for three years because I don't know React. Um, and it's kind of like my own, you know, like, is my managerial duties inhibiting my engineering background? Um, but if someone came into an interview and said to me, I should learn React, I just haven't had the time to do it. I'd be like, high five, like that's, you're, you're in the loop. Like, I just want you to stay in the loop. Um, and I, th I think this, and this might be a bias on my own part, I'll admit that, but I think this comes from my, my government days in which the, Successful engineers literally copied things from Stack Overflow and had no idea what they did. Um, and I, I just did not want to become that person. And so I want the people on my team to not become that person as well. Because I, no, I, I think that's a lot on personal and professional. I knew what you meant more at that, just, you know, because I, I know you over the years, but I, I didn't want it to come off that way to any listeners, right? Um, but I would find, I actually tend to kind of, use that as a judge too if someone learned the new hottest technology over the weekend because it came out on friday to me that would almost be a negative and it would depend on context and i would ask a lot more questions around it but one thing i see especially from you know javascript people is they want to change the stack every couple of weeks um so yeah. i do look for someone <laughs> actually pre ability which is you know I, I like people that do want to be on the leading edge and do care about keeping up with that kind of thing but you know are you going to want to move production to that new thing next week or do you realize that this might be a year down the road you know exactly I'm, i want people that you know are aware that like hey web components are coming and that's a big thing that we've been trying to do and we've been we've been doing a horrible job of it for the past 10 years by 
semantic naming. Um, and so like when you say like the most exciting thing to me is web components or the most exciting thing to me is service worker, like you're aware of what's coming um, or you say like, oh, I, I know who Paul Irish is and I read what he says every now and then on Twitter. Like, okay, that lets me know that at least you're aware. What, what I fear the most, and like I said, this probably comes from my background. What I fear the most is ending up in a shop where everyone's writing ASP.net and we're, we're stuck in like supporting IE6 and we have no idea what we're doing anymore because I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the, uh, the government work we did wasn't super progressive with our, what, 10-year-old JavaScript framework? Oh, man, you're lucky. I'm still supporting Java 6 crap. Oh. Yeah. Um, no, but I, I definitely agree. Uh, I think there's a, a huge difference between uh, passion and people who are going to put in, you know, 80-hour work weeks for you. And I do think a lot of people mean that when they are talking about passion. You know, they want people who are passionate and will want to work 12-hour days and, and crap like that. Um, but I think most people are just looking for people who are just staying up to date, keeping their skills sharp, uh, and not letting themselves stagnate. Um, and going back to the government contracts thing, I saw that exact same thing. It's like people who show up nine to five have absolutely no desire to learn anything beyond what they already know. And I think that that's, there's a time and a place for that. And in the government that works, um, you have the luxury of taking your time on a lot of things. But I think if you're not doing government work, it's it's actually kind of a dangerous mentality to get into. To the point where, like uh, like I mentioned, we're doing this Java 6 thing. And there are just gaping security flaws in this thing that people, they don't even know. Like So I think, uh, yeah. Definitely people who keep their skills sharp, just not necessarily, I don't expect them to know how to implement some of the things that we maybe discuss in the interview, but for sure, just having an awareness of what's going on around them goes so far. And I want to be clear because we did mention the government a few times. I'm not shitting on all government developers. Um, there, are, there are some amazing organizations in the government, 18F and USDS particularly are amazing developers that are doing great work um so yeah i mean that that's kind of my go-to example because it's my personal experience in some things but um but i'm not shitting on all of them <laughs> um so most of the hiring i've done has been at the engineering level um and i, I would say over the years like my style has changed a bit i used to be a lot more technical than i am now in the, the way I would perform the interviews. Um, I kind of based on if the person has some open source work or maybe even a, a good referral or something like that, I won't touch technicals too much at all. It'll be kind of the high level conversation. Um, and then I'm just going to trust that because if they're trying to trick me, they'll get fired. Right. Um, and we won't lose all that much out of it. it. It doesn't really help me much to try to put them on the spot. I feel like you filter out too many people that way. That maybe just aren't good at on the spot, um, especially to like we do remote developers. And if you're a remote developer, you're not you're not super used to that, right? You're not used to being in the same room. You're not used to doing a whiteboard. It's just not how you're used to communicating. Um, so if you don't have any open source work, I'll, I'll do like a take home test that you can complete within a couple hours. If it's going to be something longer. I then um, so I, I've had a couple people that were more junior, and so I wanted to actually give them a, a longer test to see how they handle you know a small project 
So um, one recently was somebody that was fresh out of the boot camp, right? I don't know the boot camp. I don't know how good they do. So I wanted a, a more realistic test of what they could accomplish. Um, and in that case, I told them, if we don't end up hiring you, you'll be paid for the hours and worked out a rate. That way, if they get the job, they get something out of it. If they don't, they didn't lose eight hours of their time, right? Um, so there's that. But then for especially people that are a little more senior, I just assume the technicals are there. They can answer pretty high levels. And then I spend a lot more time on conversation because especially being remote, um, you need to be able to communicate well. I, I need to know if you hit a problem because I won't see it. Um, it won't be there unless you communicate it until it's already way past the point that you can solve it for the most part. So I spend a whole lot more time on communication than technicals usually. Yeah, I definitely do too. I think uh, my favorite interviews to give are the ones where I can obviously see on either GitHub or wherever that they they know what they're doing. I can look at previous projects. I can see ideally projects over time, how they've changed their approach to certain things. Um, I love people who keep, you know, 10-year-old crap projects on their GitHub because that actually tells me a lot. Like I can see a whole bunch yeah yeah i'm the same way um see kind of how they used to do things and how they've changed their approach over the years so absolutely love that i i actually kind of hate the whiteboard interviews and like if i have to pull out the whiteboard and say here do this esoteric algorithm thing that ultimately you can look up but i'm going to tell you to do it here on the spot like you're never going to encounter it at this job like i'm really opposed to doing crap like that um and i really hate when people spring that on me i would much rather have a discussion about you know, the algorithm itself, when it might be useful, when it's maybe not the best choice. I mean, I actually find that I get a lot more out of those conversations than here, do fizz buzz or some other just, I call them crap interviews. Like it's just crap, busy work that doesn't actually tell you a whole lot about the candidate themselves. So the uh, whiteboards are really bad, by the way. They're actually biased. Um, so you, what, you don't want to do them because it's folks on there that they're, um, they are not as good at them. So that's number one. Number two is um, I really we we do a really good job on top of funnel um, giving folks a coding exercise and it's by different we have a bunch of people so there's like a front end one there's a back end one there's a service one whatever um, they're very um, they're they're kind of long they're like you know four to six hours for folks so there is a decent amount of work um, and that that a lot we lose we lose some folks because they don't want to go and do that work. But the signal that we get out of that is a they're interested in working at the company and b um, they it's really interesting to see their code and usually it's the comments and it's usually it's you get to see how they think and this is all before we've come in the door and we've started to have the conversation with them so it's it's again it's I, I, I worry a little bit about top of funnel losing people just because they're like hey I'm amazing I shouldn't take this test you know you should just know that I'm amazing. But even that person, um, that's that's there's, there's some signal there in that as well. So um, I, I I was I'm a convert to the, the coding exercise, but I think there's really good signal that comes out of it. So uh, how do you feel up about the people that would say, you know, hey, with a test that long, you're excluding people with families or people that just don't have that much free time outside of the working hours? It's it's if if you have an issue with it, if you like, if they had come back with that sort of with that sort of like very fair response. There's other ways we can figure it out. Like, come on in. We're going to do it. We'll do something shorter. We'll do it, you know, give you a computer. You can do it with no pressure inside of the building. But we haven't had that many of those. So, um, and we're we're doing reasonably well on, on, on diversity at Slack. So, um, it hasn't been that we haven't had a huge, we haven't had a huge issue with that. But we'll adapt if someone has, has some sort of issue with that. 
Yeah, I'm a, a big, big fan of the the take-home assignment at Udacity. I mean, it was kind of a, a different role because you're looking for half engineer and half teacher. Um, but we were, um, the take-home assignment was you had to build a course that taught someone something in 10 minutes. Um, one of the things you have to look out for in that is sometimes people try to do too good of a job and they would focus on, you know, like, what does the video look like and all these sorts of things that, we were not looking at. We were just looking for like, what's the code like? How do you teach? Um, so just being really clear about the parameters on your take home assignment and like that's that's something I actually learned the hard way because someone put way more time into something than I expected them to. So, you so just, now I say like, don't spend more than four hours or whatever, and I just want to see what you get done in that time, right? So I might expect them to finish in that time, but I don't tell them I do. That way, if they can't, they can't. And I still get a good feel for their general style. Because I don't care if they solve the problem so much as how they solve the problem. Right. Just being very clear about what you're looking for. The take-home assignment, you know, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Don't. And we even told them, don't focus on this. And it even got to the point where we were saying, don't do an assignment. Like, don't teach us object-oriented programming in Java. You cannot do it in 10 minutes. Don't do it. You <laughs> so. <laughs> um, and yeah, just being very clear about your expectations, which is, I mean, management 101 in general that most people aren't very good at, but just being very clear about your expectations um, is is the key here. And I love the homework assignment. All right. Uh, so let's jump into a little more. Of the, okay. So now we have the team. Now we have the people. Uh, what's it like day-to-day -day managing those people? Uh, so at first, I'd kind of like to touch on the day-to-day, -day, right? So like your job as your positions, what are they? Because I, I think they're quite different for each of us here um, on this panel. So I think it'd be interesting for people. Um, I have seven directors that work for me, responsible for about 312 engineers. Um, uh, what, you want to know about my day-to-day? -day? Like, what am I doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah. Uh, I'm sitting in a lot of meetings. <laughs> I'm in a lot of meetings. I'm probably in about, um, I'm probably about 60% of my day is scheduled starting. And then there's probably about 20%, which is random curveballs that just happen every single day. And I'm pretty religious about getting 10% of that day, um, having an hour where I can like be heads down working on something. Uh, that was a lesson I learned late in life. Um, if I, I used to think that having a day full of meetings was a, uh, a badge of honor, it's not, it's called bad leadership. Um, so I try to do that, but you know, those meetings, um, have a wide spectrum from one-on-ones to, to exec staff to, um, design reviews as good as a whole gamut of those, but it's, it's mostly a meeting lifestyle right now. Uh, so on that, what are those, what's like the context of most of those meetings, you know? So, cause you're not doing like hands-on technical stuff right so is it more strategy or what oh it's all it's strategy well the one-on-ones um i have a slack channel with every single one of my directs so we have a running log of anything that we're going to talk about in there so whatever's on that list i can vary anywhere from the three p's people process to product uh today uh 20 team planning so hour long with the execs going figuring out okay this business line what are we going to do in 2018 over the next couple of weeks we figure out what we want to do what we ask we want to put in for finance um let's see what are other things that happened today um uh an interview for another director so that was 30 minutes there so it's it you know and it, it varies wildly by the day but it's it's mostly probably more on the strategic up to the vision side of things as opposed to 
tactics. Had my staff meeting, which is you know running agenda of like whatever it was we were going over culture and results. So it, it varies, but it's it's always people, process, or product. Yeah, my my time at the, uh, at the three months ago was uh, very similar. Uh, a lot of one on ones. Uh, I'm a I'm one of the things I tell managers of managers that join my team is like you can lie to me you can let me down but do not let your people down do not lie to them like if you tell them something do it so the one-on-ones with my people are super important um i will i will cancel a meeting with my boss to do a one-on-one with someone that reports to me um so that was and managing an untenable amount of people i don't (laughs) recommend it um uh that was a big portion of my time um also, yeah, uh, like we did, I did a lot of like product level meetings because, um, you know, the engineers are building, I mean, Udacity ran, they have their, their front end that the students see, but there's a whole other product that the, the teachers are using to try and, you know, input their, their course essentially. Um, so a lot of representing the, the pedagogical perspective of the teachers and the engineers to the product people so they could get it into the product, the things we wanted to do and what our priorities were. So lots of meetings there. Um, now, uh, completely different. Um, now um, I'm doing a lot of programming um, and actually like writing, you know, figuring out like we discussed earlier, like what types of people do we need to hire? Um, what, you know, how are we going to do performance reviews? How are we, you know, going to uh, interview people? Like a lot of those sorts of policy, like new company things. Um, I'm also like calling a company to figure out where our whiteboard parts are because they only ship half of it. So <laughs> it's uh, a lot of those random startup things for, for me right now, um, which is honestly what I was looking for. I was looking to dive back into the engineering aspect a little more. Yeah, I guess my, my work isn't, so much engineering definitely engineering focus but not day-to-day managing you know large projects for the most part uh but i i am also in a ton of meetings and those meetings vary from all hands with our parent company to one-on-ones with my direct reports to meetings with my boss we're doing a lot of 2018 capacity planning and strategy and things like that Uh, so that's pretty much the, the bulk of my time these days but then you know, sometimes like now I'm, I'm at events and I'll spend eight hours a day talking to people about various aspects of technology. Um, it just really, really kind of depends. Um, but I also, I tend to hold those one-on-ones very, very sacred. Um, like if other people want to move those around, fine. It's your time with me, move it around whenever it suits you. But I try very, very hard not to move those one-on-ones and I try very hard to schedule them on Monday so that as people run into issues throughout the week, you know, that's fresh in my mind on Monday. Um, so that they can, we can rehash anything that happened last week. Yep. Go ahead. Oh, I was just curious and I would love to hear your input on this and Marcus or Michael's as well. Um, you mentioned you try to schedule your one-on-ones on Monday. Um, and I, I, I tried a strategy where like, I wanted to talk to my boss on Monday that way you know, come Monday afternoon, Tuesday throughout the week, I could disseminate that information down. And I'm wondering if if any of you have a strategy on how you execute your one on ones. I I learned this at uh, I learned this at Apple. Um, 
exec staff is on Monday, first thing Monday. It's about a three hour long meeting. Um, they go through everything that's going to happen um, in the business right now, deep dive on stuff. Uh, I wasn't in this meeting usually because I was an exec at Apple, um, but it was like how we set the tone for the week. And then staff meetings, there was cascading comms after that with one-on-ones later that day or on Tuesday. And it was, it was similar, I think a similar strategy to what Amanda was suggesting, which is it's just sort of get set the week up correctly, right? Get everything done because you whatever happened Friday, things were all fucked up, blah, blah, blah. You're not recovering. It's kind of setting the tone and kind of setting the stage. Um, I have enough one-on-ones that I, I, I strive to do that, but they get spread out because things are constantly moving around. But the strategy is sound of like having everything as early in the week as possible so that everyone's on the same page uh, following them, whatever whatever the plan is for that particular week. Yeah, that's what that's what I was trying to do. And I thought that was a sound strategy, but I, I also had one manager that was like not on Monday. And I was like, wait, you just threw a wrench into everything <laughs> for me. And so I was wondering if there was a, an alternative strategy there. That why, why not on Monday? What was his rationale or her rationale? Um, I, I think because they were tied up in executive meetings. And so Tuesday morning was okay. But, um, yeah. but yeah, it threw a wrench in my whole plan. <laughs> Yeah, um, and that's exactly why I do Mondays. And like I said, people are free to move them around. Um, I, not at this job, but at my last job, did have somebody who liked to have their one-on-ones on Friday, and that's totally fine. Like it's your time, use it when you need it, when you want it. One hundred percent on board with that. Um, I just personally like to have that on Monday. We can level set. We can talk about things that happened last week. We can talk about things that are going to happen this week. Um, and my general format is, you know, what's going well, what's not going well. Um, do you have any other feedback? Um, and I try to include uh, a little tidbit of praise. You know, sometimes you have to have hard conversations too, where you're like, you know, this isn't going so well. We need, we need to really work on this. But I also try really hard to include a positive thing in there, whether it's, hey, you did a really great job on this blog post, or hey, you know, you made updates to this library that were absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for getting that done. Um, so I try to to close with something a bit more positive like that. It's my general structure. Um, I tend to go through cycles. So like parts of the year, uh, especially the years, uh, months that are busy for our clients, I'll be in meetings pretty much nonstop, either internal or external. But then, uh, and then I travel for conferences, uh, you know, a good bit too, which is time. And then I get uh, very few blocks of time that are kind of quiet, which is uh, kind of where I'm in right now that are quiet on that side of things. And I can actually get my hands dirty with code which I, I tend to cherish because they're pretty few and far between now, uh, which I kind of relate to what you said earlier, Mike. You know, I go through periods of wondering how much of my engineering chops are you know, dwindling away because I'm you know, managing so much now. Uh, so you brought up uh, hard conversations or feedback, Amanda. So that's one thing that was on our list here we wanted to cover is um, crucial conversations or how do you go about handling difficult conversations? I'll go first. Um, so uh, this is a generalization. But engineers are generally not great at sort of high bandwidth uh, difficult conversations. Um, the way that I get to a good place is um, uh, to make it really clear how I value feedback with folks, both receiving and giving it. And sort of like, hey, this is how we're going to fundamentally uh, get better. Um, they nod their heads and they say they believe that, um, but they don't. Um, until I actually go and 
do it a couple of times um, and say, this is what this is like. Um, what I found with folks that haven't had a lot of sort of direct constructive feedback is to be really, really explicit that you're doing it and also like give them lots of signal about like, this is what's happening right now. Um, at a prior gig, we got trained in this and we, we just said things like, I'm about to give you some feedback, <laughs> which sounds like the stupidest thing ever, but because everyone knew what was about to happen, they kind of mentally put themselves in the correct state. It wasn't like this sort of like halfway through the one-on-one -on -one sort of like, like curveball. You're like, what, what the fuck happened right there? That was weird. Like you actually kind of set the stage there. You do that five to 50 times and you do that well, both on positive as well as constructive stuff. People understand that this is a safe place to be able to do this. They, uh, they recognize they get value about they get value from it because it's this gift, this feedback thing. But it's that sort of thing that it's it's easy to say is important, but it's one of these trust and respect things that just is built over time. And some folks, like I, I had one person, it was a year before he really believed that like I wasn't gonna like fire him when I said, Hey, I have some feedback for you. He was immediate mindset was like, Oh, I'm about to get fired. It was like, no, no. It took him that long to kind of understand that this was sort of a, a healthy transaction. So um, it's sort of the cornerstone of a good one-on-one -on -one to me is that that feedback in both directions, by the way, but it's a learned muscle. People do not start with a new boss or a new direct being good at this. It's something which is earned over time. That's mine. Absolutely. 100% agree. And so I reached over to my bookshelf. Um, this book, Radical Candor, written by Kim Scott. If you have not read this, it is mandatory reading for every manager. Um, it is amazing. And so I explain this concept when someone joins my team. I explain this concept to them the very first one on one because we haven't yet built that environment of trust in which I'm going to tell you like, hey, you're doing a great job or hey, you did really shitty on this. And they're just willing to accept that as like, this is valuable feedback. So I explain this concept to them as simply as I can uh, during our very first one-on-one. -on -one. And the concept is, I'm going to be radical with you. Like, I'm going to be absolutely honest. Um, and I'm going to tell you exactly, like, what I think. Um, the best example I can come up with is, like, and she, she uses it in the book. She was um, a vice president at Google, I think, in their people operations. I'm not sure. Somewhere. Um, she's went off, went off to found a company called Candor, centered around all of this. But basically, if your zipper is down um, and you walk out of the bathroom, your zipper's down. If I'm not, you know, radically honest with you and you don't trust me, those are the axis on this, this quadrant here. Um, so if I'm not honest with you, and you don't trust me, then I'm going to go tell Ben, like, hey, look, Watts zippers down. Like, isn't that funny? Um, and that's like, that's the worst quadrant you could ever operate a business in. Um, but if I'm radically honest with WAP and said, and when he walked out of the bathroom, I grabbed him and was like, hey, man, your zippers down. He knows that, like, I'm not trying to embarrass him. I'm just like, I'm helping him. And that's the way you want to get your feedback cycle in with people. Um, it requires time. It takes time to build this level of trust with people. 
where they can come to you and they can they can be radically candorous with you and you can be radically candorous with them. Um, and so that's why my very first one-on-one, I, A, if you manage people, I buy you this book and you have to read it. Um, but um, if I manage you, like I explain it to you in these terms, I tell you this is how I operate. And in six months, you'll get it and you'll understand. Yeah, for me, I think a lot of it comes down to uh, not assuming malice where there likely isn't any. So if people are having poor performance, it's likely not because they're lazy or they suck at their job. Usually it's a failure in communication or even a failure in management. I haven't set my expectations clearly enough. I haven't scoped a project correctly for somebody. There's just a disconnect uh, somewhere in that pipeline. And I think a lot of people, it's easy to lose sight of that, particularly for new managers. You know, somebody does something and it's like, oh, well, they're just being lazy. Why don't they understand this? I think a lot of new managers get trapped in that. And usually it's it's not related to somebody being lazy at all. Usually it's, it's my fault somehow. Um, so I really try to go into those things, you know, not assuming that the person is just being lazy or doesn't want to do their job or doesn't know how to do their job or isn't qualified to do their job. Um, and I really try to to distill it down into, hey, you know, here's what we've been working on. And I'm I'm very careful not to to point fingers and accuse people of doing things because I think a lot of people get trapped in that, like you did this thing or, you know, you're not doing this rather than admitting that it's actually a team failure. You know, it's everybody's responsibility to make sure that, you know, everybody understands. It's my job as a manager to make sure somebody understands my expectations and not just my expectations, but why I expect the things that I do, how that ties into company goals, how that's going to be measured and things like that. And it's the employee's job to ask questions if they don't understand something. And to some extent, I I think it's every team member's responsibility to make sure that people understand things, to be available if people have questions and things like that. Um, So it's kind of a shared responsibility. And then as far as the hard conversations, you know, I, I try to tell people like, Here's what we're working on. Here's what's not going so well. How do you think we can correct this? And I try to get them involved in that process rather than telling them you're doing this wrong and I need you to fix it. Um, I, I really try to make the the negative side of feedback more of a discussion rather than an accusation. Yeah, I think that's my main one. Um, that's what you say. Like that's my main thing is to make it a discussion and not an accusation. It's all about framing, um, in my experience. So you come in and you say, I, I also usually introduce hey this might be uh this might not be something we want to talk about or something to let them know the context um but then pretty quickly moving into this is what i see as an issue or this is what uh has been defined as a problem um not a problem with you but there's this problem what do you think the reason is for it and can we brainstorm some ideas to fix it um i've seen this in a lot of ways so it can be you know an actual you know something technical or some problem with a, a project right and it's not pointing a finger and saying you didn't do this correctly but instead of saying this thing is not correct or this thing is not what we expected how do we fix that it could be that we defined it wrong we scoped it wrong or it could be that they understood it wrong things like that um like you said not expecting malice and then with performance i I mean i find usually people that have performed well in the past don't want to perform poorly in the future um and so that there's a whole myriad of things that could be. It could be that they're unhappy in the job, or it could even be just be a personal thing that's going on in their life that's bringing down their work performance. Uh, or it could be they're overworked even. I see that a lot. You know, If their performance is slacking, maybe they're just overworked and they, they need some time off. Um, and so a lot of times I'll 
try to move priorities or say, hey, let's let's take you down to you know this one project or let's take these items off the plate and then let's slowly ramp it back up so that you can get some time to breathe again and to to you know start functioning at a higher level again. And people really appreciate that and it makes them want to want to try harder at it while they have more room to breathe. Yeah, that's what what I was going to mention is. <laughs> It's a very rare occurrence that someone wakes up and they're like, I'm going to do a shitty job at work today. Like people want to perform good at their, their jobs. I mean, yeah. Okay. Someone might have, you know, party too hard at Monday night football and, and they're hungover on Tuesday. Um, and they're going to do poor on Tuesday, but Wednesday they, they, they're doing a good job when someone is performing poorly for, let's say a week, you know, a period of time. There is a reason. You've either not set expectations clearly. Um, they have not, or they have something going on in their life. One of my most awkward, most difficult times as a manager was when someone broke down in tears in front of me during a meeting when we were talking about performance. And um, new addition to the team, I didn't take enough time to to learn about this person and how they. Um, operate and interact. Um, I had done, you know, I'm a go-getter and this person did not react to go-getter very well. And I didn't take the time to understand how to interact with this person. Um, this person also had various, you know, mental health and physical health issues for everyone around them, not them specifically. So, I mean, there were, there were faults on my part, but it was like a really tough time. Um, so yeah, just understanding that like the people you're managing, they're people and, you know, everything you've, everything you're going through, like the people on your team, they have, you know, significant others cheating on them. They have people in their family with drug problems. They have, you know, they don't know how to pay their car note or their mortgage. Like they're people, everything you're going through, these people are going through too. And you just have to like, sometimes I think not only managers, but we as people forget that everyone else walking down the street with us is struggling through life as well. Um, I wanted to mention, since we're on the note of crucial conversations, there actually is, there's a workshop called Crucial Conversations, and that's the other side of it. Because we've been talking about managers giving feedback to, um, you know, employees. But um, this is actually a pretty good um book here for and i think it's our responsibility as leaders to prepare our the people that report to us to like step into a room and like hey i'm gonna have a tough conversation with you boss um and crucial conversations is actually a really really good workshop to uh to prepare the people that report to you in having these tough conversations so i recommend that as well i have a whole stack of books <laughs> hey that's great um also if you want to throw it in the group chat we'll make sure to put it on the blog post too so that'll be helpful all right uh so we're, we're getting a little on time so um you got or you all had the agenda here is there anything you want to pick off because we might not make it all these items um i want to say a quick thing on career progression because i happen to be writing about it right now um Michael's probably dealing with this right now, but there's this point where you get enough engineers where they want to define some sort of rubric, some sort of set of levels or path or ladder or whatever that heck is. Um, <laughs> it's um, it's um, 
I've written a lot of these over the, the years, and it's incredibly, incredibly important to, to get it right. Um, but the thing that's always I've screwed up multiple times is defining um, this uh, career path for IC, individual contributors. There's levels and yeah. letters, or whatever the hell you're going to call it. Um, and then the first thing that happens is you go, okay, great, we have the career path. We all agree that this thing is a useful artifact. Hooray. Um, and then who decides who goes where? What happens there? Oh, the managers suddenly decide, these managers who don't have a career path and suddenly have this weird sort of power over folks. It creates this really interesting dynamic. And by the way, there's probably no manager career path at this point. So these people who don't have a career path are deciding for the people that do have a career path where they go. Paradox, what are we going to do about this thing? The thing that's really interesting to me is um, it's people, I, I usually see a lot of uh, engineers at that point suddenly become very interested in management. I'm going to be a manager because they see like this is the place to kind of grow and become like, you know, leaders. But the actual flaw is actually um, in the career path of the ICs because you didn't make it abundantly clear that leadership, this leadership thing, like comes from everywhere. It comes from all the engineers. It comes from the managers. It comes from all this sort of place. And it's one of those things that you can, if you get the path right and there's like a leadership facet in there and you send lots of signal about how engineers are strong leaders, or create technical lead roles, technical lead managers, lots of ways to actually go and do that. You can avoid this sort of like rush to managers and suddenly like, oh my gosh, I don't even want to be a manager. I want to go back and you can like save yourself like six to 12 months of like transfer thrash. So that's one thing I wanted to say on that one. How long more to say about it? I've been thinking about this one recently. Yeah, we ran through the exact same thing where, um, you know, where we needed to develop these career levels. We were big enough that, um, you know, you needed, you know, level one, level two, level three. But what happens when you get beyond level five and you need to branch off into IC or management? Um, and we ran into issues where there were people in the management track that, um, to be honest, we just didn't really evaluate very well to whether they would be good managers. And um, at, at this particular company, we ended up like getting rid of all that and collapsing it back down into like a matrix environment where you had a functional manager that um, you know managed all the people in that job, but then you had or in that particular role, but you had a. Um, I, I would say like a, a, you know, a project manager that managed your day-to-day -day work. So the functional manager managed like, you know, I'm looking after you for the next month, the next quarter, the next year. That's what I'm worried about. And you had a, 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 um, a program manager or a project manager, you know, someone managing your day-to-day -day efforts. Um, that collapsing was um, really, really rough to do. Not only did we, we did it right after a layoff, um, but I mean, what, what we ended up with was there were people that were managers and now all of a sudden they feel like they've been demoted and you have to have these conversations with people. And this ties back to radical candor again. You have to have these conversations to pe with people and tell them like, you were a shitty manager and here's why. Um, and those are not easy conversations to have at all. Um, and, but it leads me to think like if we had thought about the, that career progression track more, um, thoughtfully beforehand, if we had prepared people that, um, 
that, you know, the IC track is just as valuable as the management track, um, we would not have run into these situations. And I see this a lot with new managers, people that have not managed people in the past is that, you know, oh, I'm going to be the boss. Like, okay. They think that's more valuable. And to, yeah, to, to Michael's point, um, we need to influence more. If, if we are going to go down this track of engineers can both be ICs or managers. And I, I think that is a great idea. Um, then we need to do a better job of influencing that that IC track has just as much leadership and influence potential and earning potential um, that the management track has. And it's something that I don't think we've solved yet. Yeah, we're actually going through a, sorry, uh, a fair bit of that right now with um, management versus IC. Um, and I've been pretty upfront with people. Um, haven't had so much an opportunity at my current job, but at past jobs, like, okay, you want to be a manager? Come shadow me. And I explain my, my philosophy. I try to be a, a bullshit umbrella for people. So I deal with all the bullshit so that they don't have to. I, I try to shelter people from as much of it as I can. And I'm, I'm very upfront. When, when people are like, yeah, I, I think I want to get into management. I'm like, okay, come to these meetings with me, see the bullshit that gets dropped on me, and then decide if you want to be the umbrella or not. And actually, I've had a fair amount of people that are like, you know what, y you know, you don't get paid enough to deal with this, and I won't either. So I'd rather be an IC, and I'd rather just deal with that sort of work. And I'm like, that's great. I'm glad we, we figured that out early rather than placing you in a position that ultimately you're going to end up hating. And I really think that that's helped kind of offset some of the bouncing back and forth people who become managers and then are like, I hate this shit, get me out of here. Um, I think it's kind of prevented some of that back and forth a little bit. And we have had to have some conversations with people that were just, you know, they, they seemed like that's what they wanted. Um, ultimately, they really just wanted a power trip. And we've had to kind of talk to them and say, no, this isn't about you being the boss. This is really about you removing roadblocks for other people who work for you and not so much telling them what to do as much as it is letting them tell you what they're working on and you figuring out the way that that maps back to company goals and all this other crap that you have to take into consideration. I wanted to add real quick on that same note, I have done this very successfully in the past as well. Um, so I approached someone, I said, you know, we have this management track. I want you to manage these two individuals. Um, and this person came back and said, you know, I've, I've never managed anyone before. I'm okay to try it. And so um, they pushed back and said, you know, let's do this as an experiment. Let's do it for one year and then let's make a decision. Um, and it worked out really, really well after the, to be honest, I don't think we made it to the year, but, um, you know, this person came to me and we had this, this very, strong relationship and they said you know i i don't think i'm management material um but we set the foundation that this was an experiment like we're gonna test and see if you you know you can do this um and there was no like expectation of repercussions if you know okay you're a manager too but if this doesn't work you go back to being an ic5 like it's no big deal um, so just setting it, management is 100% expectation setting, like just setting good expectations of what's going to happen uh, solves a lot of problems. And so that, that worked out very well. It was a manager that we recognized, Hey, you're just, 
we can't prepare you to be a good manager and we're not even sure you're that type of personality. Um, so let's revert the change. And it worked out phenomenally. I'd love to see more companies offer that. Cause that that's a really good way to, to solve that issue. I've, I've seen way too many companies where just the best engineer is promoted to manager. And that's bad for everyone all around, right? Because, I mean, sometimes it works out, but it's usually bad for the engineer that didn't want to be a manager per se. They just wanted a pay bump or whatever. And then the company also just lost their best engineer at doing that thing. Uh, So something like that where you could try it out, but then still have the freedom to move back and not feel like a demotion and not feel like you're getting fired. That sounds pretty awesome. We call it a TLM, technical lead manager. And... um you can um, you still expect to code fifty percent of the time, um, and you uh, can only have a cap of three people on your team. And we also so that you can do two jobs well as opposed to two jobs poorly. And we also, uh, as already was eloquently said, remove the stigma from like bouncing out of that because most folks like three to six months in go like this people thing I am not built for. I'm out and. And I used to have HR come and say, like, what's going on here? Are they, are they is there a problem? I'm like, no, this is fucking great news. <laughs> like, we get the engineer back. This is going to work out great for everyone. And we celebrate. So it's a good tribe you fire by setup. Um, and, and making it, again, to the point of leadership coming from everywhere, it's a great way to kind of demonstrate to the engineers that, like, there's lots of ways to, to demonstrate leadership. I like it. All right. So we probably have time for, like, one more. Uh, anything else you want to pick off the list? Or something else completely different. Feel free. We mentioned the problem child prima donna. Do we want to pick that one up? I'm game. <laughs> all right, well, we can kick that hornet's nest. I don't know all the connotations <laughs> of those phrases, so apologies if that's uh, not a good representation across the country. It's definitely something we used in the South. So, um, How to handle it? Well, let's just be clear. Um, to the point of setting expectations, do you have a prima donna problem child on your hand you have a system error about three to six months before that where you didn't set expectations or you didn't hire someone correctly like it's almost always it's almost something always something that you didn't nip the butt in earlier and has now turned into this toxic situation so that doesn't help the current situation when you have this one but whenever i'm in this situation i'm looking at this going like what did we do wrong a year ago? What did we do wrong right now? There's things to do with setting expectations and getting hard feedback to these folks. But the better solution is to not let those situations show up in the, in the first place, which is why I'm glad we talked about feedback because that's actually one of the ways to actually kind of nip this in the bud is the first time that you see whatever that problem child prima donna behavior is, is to jump right on it and to say something immediately, which is like, hey, we have this kind of no asshole policy here and this behavior that we see here is like, and it's cool. I just want to give you this feedback right now. This is something that we really don't like to see and to like immediately and not let it be the sixth time or the seventh time where they start to say like, Oh, okay, I can be this way. There's no, there's no, there's no repercussions for acting this way in this, in this culture. So it's, it's about getting it. It's about not letting the situation happen in the first place. And that's almost always making the courageous leadership choice early on as opposed to waiting until it's so painful that someone's saying you've got a problem child like right now. So easy to say, hard to do. Yeah. So this situation actually, and you haven't mentioned it yet, so I'll, I'll do the product placement for you. This situation actually made me think of um, the freakouts in your managing humans book. Um, and so when I encountered this, 
Um, and so I think problem children and prima donna, whether that's the right term or not, um, are two different things. Um, when I think problem child, I think like, oh, I'm the smartest person in the room. And yeah, you're right. Like that's, that's something, that's a cultural thing that should have been solved a while ago. Um, but when there's, when there's someone that's like just freaking out in your office and I always tell my people, you're allowed to be an asshole to me, but you're not allowed to be an asshole to anyone else. And so when they're, when they're being an asshole to me, um, that's a signal that like this person really cares about what we're doing and it's an opportunity for me to start like asking questions and trying to get to a solution um and and figuring out like what is the root cause you know the root cause analysis <laughs> engineers are familiar with that and that's what i do to people what is the root cause analysis that is causing this person to act in this particular way um but it's also a signal to me that this person really they're in it for the long haul and they care about what we're doing beyond just the nine to five. And so let me, you know, let's come to a solution. And I think most of the time you can actually prod this person to come up with a solution themselves, which is way more empowering from a growth perspective than you stipulating a, a, um, a particular solution. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, I have run into situations, unfortunately, where just trying to, to mentor and reason with them didn't work so much. Um, and I have had to fire the problem child. And that's a really tough decision. Um, I mean, firing anybody is difficult and you just have to be very empathetic about it and kind of empathetic, but not to the point where you're like, never mind, I can't actually fire this person. Like, you got to do what you got to do. Um, and that's that's very important. But it got to the point where it's just like you're... you're your tone is too toxic for the team. You're actually driving people away. Yes, you're very productive at your job. You're very good at your job, but you just can't work with other people on this team. That's not to say you can't work with other people. That's not true at all. There are certain places where the problem children absolutely fit in and that type of mentality will be valued. It's just, it might not be your organization. Uh, your organization might not be set up for that. So I think it's important when talking to the problem child, if it actually does get to that point to say, you know, hey, this isn't your fault. It's not necessarily, you know, you're, you're wrong, you're bad, whatever. Um, it's just, it, it's, it doesn't jive with this particular workplace. Cool. Uh, I think you all covered it pretty well. Uh, so I think we'll wrap up now. So we are a little past time. Uh, I want to thank you both for joining us today. Uh, I know we took about two years to finally get this one scheduled. That <laughs> <laughs> was great. To no worries. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was awesome. Yeah, I had a good time. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. All right. Take care.